Teamwork Arts Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. This is where we try and go behind um, the thoughts that animate the action uh, actions of those who create the arts. And today, uh, just incredibly excited to have the wonderful Tom Holland uh, uh, with us. Uh, uh, you would probably know him for those witty tweets saying that he's not Spider-Man. <laughs> I just put one that on the record for any of your listeners who think that I might be Spider-Man. Yeah. I'm not. And yeah. I apologize for that. If the, they're big Marvel fans. There is uh, there is no bodysuit under, under no, this. No, there uh, isn't. Well, I can't reveal that, can I? I mean, no, that's the whole point. Actually, I mean, I might be Spider-Man, it, it but, but I, couldn't, I couldn't say if I was. So... <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not allowed to talk about it. Um, the Rest is History, of course, is a podcast that has, uh, uh, according to William Dalrymple, made a lot of money <laughs> and also uh, made history. I, I do it purely for the love of broadcasting. <laughs> the thought of money doesn't enter into doesn't, it. It's, it, it's purely the love of the art, isn't purely it? Purely the love of the art, yes. <laughs> um, The Rest is History. We've, we've all sort of grown up, um, uh, you know, uh, reading history um, like it was wearing uh, a three-piece suit and a tie. You've made it wear a natty pair of jeans and, and a t-shirt as well. Uh, well, that's, that's a very nice way of putting it. Thank you. Um, yeah, we, we um, well, I think history is at the bottom. The reason for doing it is that it is fascinating and it's infinitely fascinating. It doesn't matter what period it is. It doesn't matter what era of the world it is. It doesn't matter what aspect of society you study, there is the, 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 the multiplicity of ways of understanding the past is also about the multiplicity of ways of understanding what it is to be human. And what could be more fascinating than that? And if you, um, you know, if you want to study it in a three-piece suit or if you want to study it in your underpants, both are equally valid in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, as long as you're studying it, that's the importance, isn't it? I think I think so. Well, I, th I you know I mean there are lots of people, of course, who, who don't study it. But but my personal feeling is that history for me is the most fascinating doorway into understanding what it is to be human. It's uh, you know it, it'd be wonderful, of course, to have uh, uh, your opinions about how history is being treated now. But uh, before that, let's uh, go straight back into uh, something that I'm personally very excited to uh, talk to you about, which is, of course, the importance of being frank. I mean, we've all grown up with the importance of being earnest, and then uh, you realize Tom Holland's written the importance of Well, I'm amazed that you've, you've tracked this down. So this was the very earliest thing that I ever wrote yes. for which I got paid. And it was, um, it was a play. I was at Cambridge, a student at Cambridge in England. Um, and I, I wrote this play in which... Um, Basically, I turned The Importance of Being Earnest, the Oscar Wilde's great comedy, into a play about Oscar Wilde. Exactly. Um, and, you know, the protagonist gets arrested, um, gets sent to prison, um, has an affair with, uh, you know, <laughs> with, with, with the other guy. Um, so the, the, the events of The Importance of Being Earnest mutate into the events of Oscar Wilde's life. Um, and uh, I, I then turned it into a radio play and, and got my first ever payment as a writer so it's incredibly precious to me but i you know it's been it's been buried for about 30 years so thank you very very much for exhuming it which is a pity because if anyone can lay hands on uh, the importance of being frank and if uh, anyone uh, has uh, the remotest of ideas about the life of oscar wilde it is a fascinating read and what was also fascinating is when i dove into um uh, you know uh, the deep ocean of wikipedia to, to, do, <laughs> to do my research it also said that um, uh, you let go of studies because you said i'm fed up of universities and i'm fed up of well, being poor <laughs> yes well so, so i um i went on to uh, to, to do a doctorate on uh, lord byron and ancient greek poetry yes 
And I, I, it was a terrible mistake because I realized I didn't want to, to be at university anymore. Sure. Um, and also, I, I, I was kind of staring down the barrel at a problem that I think um, often haunts the study of both literature and I think religious belief, which is that the process of studying it can, in a, to a degree, kind of kill what makes it vital. So it's a little bit like studying a butterfly by putting a pin through it and dissecting its wings. I mean, you, you know, it, it will teach you very, very important things about the functioning of a butterfly. But if that butterfly isn't you know, flying around a garden, something sure. has been lost. And I felt that, that studying Byron, you know, Byron is not the kind of guy really who was at home at universities. Sure. You know, he famously took a bear to Cambridge when he went there. And so I, rather than write an academic study, I, I, I wrote a novel in which Byron was a vampire. <laughs> because Byron was the, was the model for the original vampire story yes. that gives us the, the, the image of the vampire that now haunts the popular imagination of, of us as pale and beautiful and aristocratic. Whereas before that, the, the, the vampire in U European superstition was, was a peasant, was kind of hairy, muddy, um, up from the soil. And so I wrote, I wrote a, a novel in which Byron was literally a vampire, and I felt that it actually explained the mysteries in his life better than any other interpretation <laughs> of it I've read. Um, and then I, I kind of got, I got locked into um, a, a further three-book deal. Um, so I wrote three more vampire books, um, which had never really been the, uh, the literary avenue that I'd seen myself going down. Sure. I'd wanted to write a great novel, um, and instead there I was writing, write, writing vampire fiction. But what it, brought, what it opened my eyes to was the fact that actually I, I didn't really want to be writing novels at all because all the novels that I wrote, the, th the four vampire novels, were all set in periods of history. And it was the, the history that moved and excited and stirred me. And I became frustrated at having to kind of include vampires or whatever permanently in fields of history that I felt were actually quite interesting enough. And the very last one was, um, it was set in Egypt. And it was kind of like a Russian doll, the structure of the novel. Right. So the outer, the outer doll was the story of Howard Carter discovering the tomb of Tutankhamun. The, in, the, the next doll was the story of Al-Hakim, who was um, a caliph, Fatimid caliph, who uh, is, is sometimes described as the, the Muslim Caligula. Absolutely oh. tremendous character in the 10th century. Um, and then the, the, fight, the, the kind of the inner core was the story of Akhenaten, who may well have been Tutankhamun's father, the heretic pharaoh, the, the pharaoh who tried to close down um, the worship of the, the traditional Egyptian gods, and who was portrayed in a, a very kind of mysterious way, if anyone's ever seen statues of him, kind of great statues in, in the Cairo Museum. I mean, he looks very, very odd, kind of half male, half female, great elongated face. I mean, nothing like conventional portrayals of pharaohs. Um, and of course, in my novel, the reason for this is that he's a vampire. <laughs> surprise, surprise! <laughs> but, but, but I immersed myself in the history of the, the age of Akhenaten, of the Fatimids, sure. and of, of Howard Carter. I mean, I, I, I read everything. And really, that's, that's what I was interested in. The book came out and I thought, wow, people are going to be so impressed with the amount of research <laughs> I put into this. But of course they were, because it's a vampire book. I mean, they really read it. Uh, who had any interest in the actual history. But, but I came out of that and I thought, do you know, I, I don't want to write any more vampire books. I don't even want to write fiction. What moves and stirs me, and I should have realized this before, is, is history. And 
ever yes. since then, that's what I've stuck to. And I think it, it's often the case that it can take writers time to work out what the kind of wellsprings of their inspiration are. Sure. Um, and, and that was certainly the case for me. Also, I think uh, the fact that um, only by doing do you realize what not to do, which is... Yes, I think that's true. I think, that, I think that's true. But also, it, 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 I suppose um, I, I've always been interested in the way in which um, history is necessarily literary. So it's the only discipline that is simultaneously a field of academic study and a literary art form. And I guess I'm more interested in it as a, as a literary art form than as an academic field of study, although you can't write history as, as a literary arm form without being as, as true as you possibly can to the, 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 the academic requirements of study. But I think that history, ever since the age of Herodotus, the first great historian, has always been, you know, the, the, it is writing. And it's important, I think, always to bear in mind that absolute objectivity is impossible when you write history, you are writing a text, and texts are literary by their nature. Sure, sure. And that shows, I mean, you know, uh, um, what struck me was the fact that even with the vampire books, you decided to do spell vampire with a Y instead of, uh, of an well, I. Well, yes, because um, the famous uh, evening in 1816, when Byron and Shelley and Mary Shelley and Byron's doctor, uh, John Polidori, were locked up in the, the villa in Geneva, looking out over Lake Geneva. Um, and of course, this is chiefly famous for Mary Shelley having the inspiration for Frankenstein, possibly the most famous horror science fiction novel <laughs> ever written. But um, Byron told a story about an aristocrat who goes to the Balkans, as he had done, who um, has something mysterious happens to him there he comes back to London and it's revealed that he's a vampire. And that was sufficiently close to Byron's own story, obviously, for, for that to be suggestive. Sure. Byron himself never wrote that story up, but Dr. Polidori did, and he published it under Byron's name, and he called the book Vampire with a Y. And so that's why Byron became associated with the figure of the aristocratic vampire, right. is that people read this book and they didn't know that it had been published by Polidori, they thought that it was Byron. And actually, Goethe, the great German writer, rather embarrassingly said he thought it was the best thing Byron had ever written. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's why it's important to have research and to uh, have a curious mind because even one word can, uh, yeah. can mean so much. I mean, yeah. and, and that's the beauty of history, isn't it? Also, you were talking about uh, you know people like uh, Akhenaten and um, and Tutankhamun. Uh, modern uh, uh, modern movie making have. Uh, sort of, you know, uh, fitted them into very neat little boxes of good and evil and Brendan Fraser's and Tom Cruise's going and killing them, etc. But yeah. it never is that black and white, is it? And uh, and that probably needs to be underlined a little more today than... Uh, uh, than well, I, I mean, actually, the, the way that Akhenaten has been understood is fascinating because mm. the, the background for this is that <clears throat> Akhenaten essentially seems to be trying to introduce a form of, of monotheism. Um, and the, the, the relevance of this for the, you know, for, for the story of Moses, for the story of the, the Israelites escaping Israel, was immediately apparent to people. Sure. And Sigmund Freud wrote a famous um, uh, study of it in which he suggested that you know, Moses was an Egyptian name, that Moses had been a, a priest of Akhenaten who'd led the Hebrews out into the desert where they had then killed him. 
And so the whole kind of emergence of the idea of Yahweh as the, this volcano god who was simultaneously very brutal and very elevated was um, a kind of sublimated memory of the murder of this priest of Akhenaten, which was, tells you far more about Freud, I think, than it does about <laughs> the historical Akhenaten. Sure. But, it, but, but, it's, but it, it, it suggests how the combination of, of, of detail and things that we don't know, say with Akhenaten, provides rich, rich scope for people to come up with all kinds of theories. And to this day, the, the, the question of what Akhenaten was up to so there are people who cast him as the, you know, the ancestor, the prototype of a totalitarian. Exactly. Someone who wanted to get rid of all the other gods because he sure. couldn't directly control it. And, sure. and they say that's why he was so hated, that after he died, his very memory was buried, which ironically is why Tutankhamun's tomb came to be preserved, because Tutankhamun was included in this Damnatio Memoriae, this attempt to erase all memory of Akhenaten and his family. So his name wasn't included in the king's lists. And so when grave robbers went to the Valley of the Kings, they didn't have Tutankhamun's name on the list. And so that's why his tomb was preserved. And so the irony is, is that the attempt to obliterate Tutankhamun's memory resulted in due course, you know, two and a half thousand years wow. on from his death, in him wow. becoming perhaps the most famous of all the pharaohs, no which, is, which is an, you know, an example of the kind of irony that makes the study of history so compelling and fun. And that's, that's consummate storytelling there itself. No wonder the rest of history is um, for the love of the art and not the money, of course. But, um, You're too kind, sir. But uh, really, I mean, uh, uh, the fact remains that uh, it exerts a, a magnetic fascination, but you cannot deny the fact that there has to be rigor in the detail and the nuance of history. Of and we're increasingly being told that uh, um, uh, this is an age where um, attention spans are shrinking, everyone's going into the 280 characters and the 10 second reels, etc. Um, uh, of course, we'll come to the fact that uh, 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 the huge success of um, uh, of the rest is history is a, is a different matter altogether. But what are your views on research? Do you think the, the rigor that is required, the, uh, you know, the attention to detail that is required is, is something that's changing? It's, uh, is, is the definition of research changing in the times that we are living in? I, th I think that um, the, 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 uh, the, the requirements to research a, a subject thoroughly are, if anything, even more rigorous than they've ever been, because um, there's a sense in uh, the academic field of history that you need to go ever deeper to find areas and fields that haven't already been studied. Um, and so in that sense, this is the best time ever to be studying history, simply because there's so much more research, Absolutely. you know, year on year, month on month, year, day by day, more and more, um, more and more studies are being published. But that can become a problem because you can end up um, struggling to see the wood for the trees. Yeah. Um, and so I think that even as an ability and a readiness to dig down and, and, and get absolutely as close as you can to fields of history is, is vital. So also is it very important sometimes to step back and try and, 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 and see things in a kind of broader dimension. Sure. And it's the interplay between those two requirements that, that make history both challenging and so enjoyable, I think. And, uh, you know, um, I, I myself am a radio broadcaster and it just warms the cockles of the heart to see what you've done with radio and now with podcasting. The audio medium is just so fascinating, isn't it? Because um, uh, the most intimate of media, because it does, it, it poses no questions. You can 
listen to it while doing things or you can give it your uh, complete attention but it is also a medium which which requires repetition um, uh, had, did you fall in love with radio before doing it uh, do you st what, what do you think of the medium right now that yeah you know? I, I, I always loved radio I um, so, so actually I'll tell you when I first got into radio and it has a link to India is that India was the first country outside England that I ever traveled to so I landed in what was then Bombay before I'd even been to Edinburgh Mm -hmm. um, so I, and I had this kind of five-month backpacking around India. And to make that the money for that, I worked in a series of jobs that were really dull, kind of, you know, digging and painting and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I had a very, very early prototype of a Walkman. Um, and I would tape radio programs because often I couldn't hear music, but I could hear the spoken word. So I would tape spoken radio programs and listen to them over the course of the day. And so that kind of hardwired um, a, a, a love of, radio, of spoken radio. But, and I then went on to, to, um, to, to present various radio programs on, um, uh, on British radio. But I find, I find doing podcasts a wholly different order of, of enjoyment because there is an agility, a, a lack of ponderousness to doing them that you don't get with, um, with more conventional radio. Because with, you know, if you want to get commissions for national radio stations, you have to get, you know, you have to get a commission. Sure. You have to you put in proposals, you have to get it vetted. You have producers, you have uh, maybe the, um, the, the producers are answering to diktats from commissioning editors. There are all kinds of requirements, all kinds of, sure. um, you know, axes that need to be set in a straight line before you can shoot an arrow through it. But with a podcast, you have the ability to be incredibly agile. You can put out as many as you like. You can put them out when you like. Um, and you can, you know, if you're doing a history podcast as I am, we, we, we cover anything that we want. So sure. we've ranged from uh, the Neanderthals, you know, prehistoric hominins, right the way up to the most contemporary of politics. So we, when, when, uh, when the Russians invaded Ukraine, we did a series of episodes on the history of Ukraine. We did a series of episodes on um, Russia from... Uh, the collapse of communism up to uh, up to the present day, and we could do that immediately. And that sense of of freedom, I find completely intoxicating. And it shows because uh, <laughs> listening to the rest of history is I one can literally imagine you rubbing your hands together and saying, "Yeah, yeah often, yeah, yeah, that. yeah, <laughs> yeah." That yeah. excitement is palpable. And uh, did you expect the kind of reaction that you got? No, not at all. Um, no, I, I find it stupefying that it's, it's, um, it's had kind of generated the listenership that it has. And I find it, you know, very, very reassuring <laughs> that, that there are clearly people who share my opinion that history is inherently fascinating. There's, there's also a word that's being increasingly used with the interpretations of history that are being put out across the world, um, uh, which is weaponization. Uh, yes. Uh, there's, uh, you know, parts of history that are being taken uh, to serve a certain idea yeah. or an agenda, etc. How does that make you feel as a historian? Well, I think it, it, it means that history is never just history. Hmm. So even as you can say that history is completely worth studying in its own terms, because um, actually an ability to emancipate yourself from the present will make you understand the present better. If you can, if you, you know, you inhabit the mindset of someone in... 11th century Baghdad or 15th century Tenochtitlan. You know, these are societies that are profoundly different to me. And so the effort of trying to understand what made them function, what made them tick, even if it will never be total, 
it opens up ways of understanding the world that otherwise I wouldn't have access to. However, against that, there is also the fact that I, you use the word weaponization. I think history is increasingly being used. So the, the uses that um, Vladimir Putin made of his understanding of, of Russian and Ukrainian history was fundamental to preparing the way for the invasion of Ukraine. In the summer before uh, the invasion of Ukraine, he published um, an essay that he claimed to have written, I mean, whether he did or not, who knows, sure. that went into, you know, he was, he was looking at 10th century settlement of Kiev and all, all kinds of things like that. Sure. But, you know, but, 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 you know, but it's evident in India as well that, that understandings of, say, the Muslim invasions are an absolutely red button issue here. And, well, and the perspective that you have on it is it's not just a matter of history, it's very political. Uh, the more concerning part also is the fact that, um, uh, you know, as someone so beautifully put it, that um, uh, sometimes asking a question becomes an act of rebellion in today's DNA. <laughs> yeah, <can't be>. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you think? Uh, uh, do you think questioning is happening enough? Um, I think. I think. I mean, one of the, one of the other things that's happened, um, particularly in the West, perhaps. Uh, is that people have been asking questions about history that they don't realize are questions about history. So in India, it seems to me that the, the, the questions are very clearly about history often. You know, it's about what the legacy of British rule, Mughal rule, or um, the influence of, of the ancient Hindu past on the present. You know, people know that they are discussing history when those topics are raised. But if you look at... Um, say my country, we had a very convulsive referendum about whether Britain should remain a member of the European Union or not. And this was couched very much in terms of economics or immigration or whatever. But fundamentally, it seemed to me that it was a question about history. It was about how you interpreted British history because Britain's relationship to Europe is ultimately conditioned by geography. We are an island, but we are also so close to the continent of Europe that we can never emancipate ourselves. I mean, and, and so therefore, you know, we can't live with the continent of Europe, we can't live without it. And the whole course of, of British history has been a process of saying, yeah, we'll be part of the continent. Oh, no, we won't. Oh, yes, we will. No, we won't. And it will never be resolved. Um, and so it didn't surprise me that the, the, the referendum, you know, it was 52, 48. I mean, that pretty much... That's a yeah. formula that you could apply to the whole span of British history. Such a wonder, uh, that's such an interesting perspective, actually. I mean, if you were to think about it, the vacillation of uh, uh, the Brexit question versus the clarity of, uh, of questioning here uh, in our own backyard. Uh, that, that's a perspective to have. I mean, that's always... Well, you know, and I think, I think you could also say, apply it to the European Union. The, the, the question yeah. of whether of Europe makes sense as a geopolitical entity as well as a, a oh. geographical entity. Oh. And, uh, you know, and again, this takes you right the way back to the Romans, to the Greeks, to their understanding of how the continents related to one another. Um, so this is, you know, there's always a place for history in these kind of, and I suppose, you know, the, 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 way, the way in which a, a concept of India exists, you know, is, is the concept of India, is, is it dependent on the construction of the geopolitical entity by the British? Is it older than that? Is it something that is kind of sacral? And I think it is. I mean, I think that the, the, the notion of India as, as, um, as a coherent entity is something that does derive from very, very kind of ancient understandings of its shrines and the holiness of its rivers. Sure. And I think this was evident to, to Chinese travelers in antiquity when they came. They had a sense of India 
Um, so, so, but that sense, you know, in, India is more than the lines on a map of the world in 2022. Sure. 2023, sorry. I'm, <laughs> shows I'm a historian, I'm living in the past. <laughs> oh. The way you tell stories just, I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it grabs you, it draws you in. It'd be fascinating to know the process of how you do a Do you write a script uh, or is it that you sit in front of the mic and you have an idea and then you, it's all fluid? How does that happen? Uh, it, it, it depends how well we know the subject, to be honest. Okay. So, obviously, there are some subjects we know quite well and there are others that we don't. Sure. Um, and, and usually we will have notes in front of us, so we'll do reading for it. We'll have notes in front of us. But uh, we, we, we try not to script it because we want to know, you know, we want to leave it open to, to go where we want to. It's the best, isn't it? Also, since we are living in the world of social media, uh, probably a little listicle for those who want to start their own podcast and those who want to take their first tentative steps towards uh, writing about history, three to five points that you'd like them to remember or forget, whichever. Well, I think, I think the requirements of doing a podcast and writing a book are, are, are pretty different. But the one thing that, that you absolutely have to have to do both is an utter fascination with the subject of what you want to do. And you can't write a book and you can't do a succession of podcasts on topics that you're not passionately interested in. Um, you know, it's, it's, it can be quite, a, a, it requires self-discipline to write a book. And unless it's coming from kind of deep wellsprings of personal fascination, you're probably not going to do it. And likewise, you know, if you're doing a podcast on a subject that you're doing solely because you think it will bring you listeners, after, you know, 10 or 20, you will be found out. For sure. Uh, you have to be, you know, this above all to in itself be true, as Polonius told Hamlet. And I think that you asked for a listicle, that's what I would say. Yeah. Be true one. to yourself. <laughs> be true that, to yourself. And remember, the mic never lies. It will catch you out if you don't feel it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. I, I, I mean, the, the odd thing about the podcast, say, is that... In a sense, I, uh, I I have a slight persona on it, and I do it with a colleague, Dominic Sandbrook, who also has a persona. So his persona is that of a uh, kind of John Bull, uh, country squire, and mine is a kind of an effete <laughs> metropolitan liberal. Yes. And, and neither of them are entirely true, but there's enough truth in them yeah. that we can make play with that. Uh, yeah, as long as you're clothing a personality but yeah. not uh, yeah. uh, completely camouflaging it, I exactly. guess that's, that's exactly. the subtle difference yes. of, uh, exactly. uh, of the audio medium. And likewise, is... if, if you're writing a book, I think it, uh, I, you know, I, to go back to what we talked at the beginning of this, um, this talk, what, 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 what I try to negotiate when I write about, say, ancient periods of history is... I want to try and avoid sticking the pin in the butterfly. That's important. I, I, I want to create a world in which people say, if I'm writing about uh, first century AD Rome, I want to give a portrait of, of Rome in which the reader can kind of share in the Roman belief in their gods. Absolutely. I don't want the gods to be dead. I don't want to impose my 21st century perspective on it. I want to, to enter the mindset of, of, of the Romans. Absolutely. And so likewise, I, I, my most recent book was A History of Christianity. Um, so actually two and a half thousand, not just 2,000 years, because I, I looked at the, the various elements that went into the emergence of Christianity. But over the course of it, uh, I, I tried to, to see the world 
through the eyes of the various people that I was describing. And so there are periods where I, I absolutely portraying angels as real. Um, you know, the, 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 the visions of Christ that people have in the Middle Ages are absolutely real. I, I don't want to impose and import a 22nd century, uh, sorry, a 21st century kind of secular liberal skepticism. Because, because that is to stick that pin into the butterfly. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's, it's difficult, You've got, but equally you don't want to surrender to, yeah. to it completely. So it's, it's, it's a kind of fascinating tightrope to walk. And it's a wonderful tightrope because uh, the way you paint a verbal picture uh, through your podcast is what uh, lets the mind uh, you know, make the butterfly fly. So oh, you're very kind. Which is, you're very, very which kind. is wonderful. So if you haven't heard the podcast called uh, The Rest is History, and uh, as we keep saying ad nauseum, but it uh, bears repetition, if you don't learn from the mistakes of history, we will be doomed to repeat them. Uh, so probably a good idea to uh, listen, because that's a first step to thinking, which is something that we need to do a little more. So thank you very much for giving us uh, these wonderful recipes for food for thought. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Uh, that's Tom Holland, ladies and gentlemen, on the Teamwork Arts podcast. Uh, remember, it's uh, important to listen. Uh, we shall underline that. And also, if you want to listen to more of our podcasts, well, you know, just follow us on social media. You'll know. This is the Teamwork Arts podcast. Thank you very much for watching.